Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. Now, can British Columbia become a global artificial intelligence powerhouse in the coming years? Steve Lowry, he's the executive director of AINBC. He discusses the launch of a new artificial intelligence network aimed at doing just that. That's later on in the show. And also later on, well, October marks Healthy Workplace Month and wellness and stress coach Nicole Porter, she joins the show to offer insights on how workers can better regulate everything from their sleeping habits to screen time and reduce that stress that they're facing. But before we get to our interviews, a few events to tell you about. October 2nd, that is coming up this week at the Vancouver Club. We have a BIV expert panel all about navigating the U.S. for business. And the next week, October 9th, also at the Vancouver Club, we have an expert panel on Cannabis Year One, talking all about the challenges we face and what lays ahead. For more details on all those events, go to BIV.com slash events. Now let's go ahead and kick it off with our conversation with Steve Lowry from AINBC. So Tuesday, October 1st, marks the official launch of AINBC. It's a network aimed at developing the province into a global hub for artificial intelligence. And joining us today to talk about it more, it's Steve Lowry. He's the executive director of AINBC. Steve, thanks for joining us on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So tell me, what is kind of the genesis of this network that you guys are launching here? And tell me, what's the mandate overall? Sure. Well, I mean, AI is a technology that's really going to you know, renovate not only society, but the business world as well. And so you can think of it almost like internet was in the 90s, just very horizontal, cutting across many different industries. And, you know, yet it's important that um, BC kind of stay on the cutting edge of that and to be, you know, pushing the economy forward. Uh, it's important to make sure that that um, initiatives that are happening in the space are, are you know, going the right way and have the right support. Um, so we've we've you know come together um, to really represent you know industry, but also engage with uh, government and academia to you know ultimately grow the economy through uh, efforts around AI. Yeah, what makes BC kind of a, a cool location for the development of artificial intelligence? Yeah, a few things. I mean, uh, you know, one thing is, is location um, in terms of where we are sort of globally, um, you know, it's not too far to Asia. So we've got companies like Fujitsu, which have set up their, um, you know, head office for AI in Vancouver. Um, you know, we're on this sort of West Coast. We've got the Cascadia Corridor down to Seattle and, and Silicon Valley in the South. Meanwhile, uh, you know, Toronto and Montreal to the to the east in Canada. So it's a good sort of geographic location. But there's also a lot of strength around particular types of AI technology in the province. Um so, you know, we're strong in computer vision, uh, robotics as well, um, generative models and, and um, you know, something called artificial general intelligence. So there's a range of, you know, particular technologies that, that uh, are coming largely out of, you know, UBC and SFU. Yeah, well, so it's interesting to me because you think about AI maybe 10, 15 years ago, and a lot of it is centered on, you know, what computer labs are at the universities doing a lot of cool things. Now we're getting to that maybe that age of commercialization. And I'm wondering what, from your perspective, is going to be key to make sure that there's it goes from kind of academia to economic development moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That is the, the you know the phase that we are moving into. There's some really noted um, research accomplishments in Canada uh, on the whole, but you know, 
I think there's a sense nationwide that we need to keep up the momentum and, you know, really, you know, kind of kill it when it comes to, to commercialization as well. And so, you know, key in that, I would say, is um, access to capital. We did a, um, you know, a survey of our membership and found um, sort of, I think, 30%, 37% said that um, capital is probably uh, the number one thing that they would like to help, you know, further further their economic development. Um, talent as well. So that's another key one is... Um, because there's you know such specialized skills in, in AI, um, trying to attract you know the top top level uh, you know PhD researchers and the like uh, can be challenging. So it's important that we put in the supports in the province to do that. Um, you know, an example of that could be creating an institute on the west coast um, that you know sort of works with the universities and brings in some extra funding to be able to keep top level researchers in their jobs here, working away in you know in BC as opposed to perhaps getting snapped up for big salaries down south or other parts of the world. So really important to keep an eye on, um, you know, not only research, but, um, you know, how we, we you know, put programs in place that um, you know, provide capital and talent for companies. So tell me, I, I know that you guys have some initiatives in mind at AI and BC that you think is going to help bolster the industry locally. Tell me a little bit about what you guys want to do. Yeah, well, as I just mentioned, you know, creating an institute on the West Coast would be a huge accomplishment for us. We're putting, you know, working with uh, UBC and SFU on on that, and you know, engaged with different levels of government. Um, but yeah, in terms of you know projects that are in flow at the moment, um, we've got a big conference coming up in the start of December called Crossover AI. Um, and so that's a great opportunity for uh, not only academics, but um, politicians and you know, government folks and, and companies to get together. It's happening during um, the world's largest AI conference. It's called NeurIPS, and that's coming to Vancouver uh, December 9th. Well, I guess starting the 8th with uh, like 10,000 researchers kind of descending on the wow. city. So we're you know using that time to also bring together um, the government to hear from what they're, them as to what their their uh, plan is with AI and then um, a number of growth stage startups and larger companies all as well. So, um, you know, we're really here to create connections between, you know, companies and, and government, as I say, uh, and then also bringing in um, some, you know, delegations from overseas to sort of reverse pitch their problems. So to see that if perhaps, um, you know, Vancouver companies, startups and the like, could help them with uh, initiatives they have using AI to solve some problems um, for other other groups overseas. So, you know, from your perspective, is it a matter of finding kind of market-driven sort of products that can be developed? Or is it, you know, products that have that AI basis that have been developed and kind of still searching for that market that's ready? Is, is there kind of a, a balance that we're still seeking out right now in this particular marketplace? Yeah, well, I mean, what we have that we're really strong in BC is about 150 companies commercializing AI. So um, while some other you know, centers around Canada have you know some deeper sort of roots in in particular areas of research that are quite popular right now, so deep learning and, and neural networks are very um, you know, there's a lot going on in that space. Um, you know, meanwhile, our, our research is uh, you know also also quite noted as well. But I think you know still coming to the fore in terms of automated decision making and some other areas that um, you know we can get into the specifics of. But um, I think what we're really strong at is, you know, companies, startups that have just figured out how to, um, you know, sell worldwide. You know, in, in the survey that we did, we found that uh, 40% of companies listed their primary market as worldwide, um, as over, you know, Canada or over the United States. So um, we've got, you know, I think really hardworking startups that have figured out how to, how to do that. Um, and without sort of the, you know, kind of big cluster of, say, head offices, you might find out east and other, other areas. So, um, you know, that's that's an area of expertise that we have here and that we're willing really to kind of double down on. I think uh, for a long time, you know, companies are saying uh, we all have to become a tech company. 
Um, do you think if we're looking down the road, a lot of companies, doesn't matter what industry you're in, a lot of them will say, well, we have to become an AI company. Is it just going to be that ubiquitous of a technology concept that everybody's going to be deploying it? Yeah, well, I think at this point, there's a sense of, well, we better figure out what's going on in AI, much again, like the internet was in the 90s, like things are coming and no one, you know, many don't exactly know what to make of it or where they're going to play in this kind of new field. But, you know, fast forward 10 years, and it really will be a ubiquitous te technology that, you know, whether you plan out how to bring it into your, your organization or not, it's just kind of going to be there, um, you know, because it just brings such efficiency and, and advances, you know, products to, you know, a high level. So I think it's just naturally kind of rising tide floats all boats. We're going to find that that coming in. But certainly the companies that are, um, you know, putting forethought into it now and, you know, training their, their, their staff as to, you know, how AI works, how data science works, um, where we're Working with some universities, uh, notably Northeastern University is actually a new university that's open just um, in Vancouver with a very much AI focus. They've created some workshops where they you know, train executives and other folks in, in professional capacities around AI and just understanding, you know, kind of the playing field and where some of the opportunities are. So I you know, highly recommend that people look for opportunities to, to get educated in, in the space. Yeah, it was interesting. I was speaking to the Northeastern uh, folks a couple weeks back, and they're explaining how the talent issue is one of the driving forces behind you know what they're doing there and uh, hopefully they'll be able to draw a lot of students in and keep them sticking around here in British Columbia how much is that talent issue kind of hovering above the heads of a lot of the people at these companies the decision makers thinking about well if we need this growth we definitely need the talents behind it no absolutely um, you know I think it's somewhat challenging for the leaders in the companies because they don't exactly know you know who the right position is or how to hire for it because these are very new positions. Um, at the same time, you've got, you know, tech startups or AI startups, which really understand the the area and they know who they want, but sometimes it's hard to recruit them because, you know, perhaps someone sees a great job at a, you know, growth stage startup here and they say, hey, I may be interested in doing that, but, you know, what if it doesn't work out? Is there, you know, other places I could sort of, you know, go to? And our job here at AINBC and, you know, the industry generally is to really show the, the strength of the ecosystem, that there's 150 companies, you know, doing a lot of things in the space and that there's you know, more and more opportunity arising. So I think that really helps the talent story if we can, or how, you know, the ability to attract talent is, is kind of telling that story that, um, you know, there's a lot, lot going on here. Oh, just for you personally, like what's drawing you in? Like what uh, makes you just really excited about AI right now? Yeah, I mean, you know, good question. Um, you know, just seeing a lot of potential. I worked a bit in the legal space prior to this, you know, I've been in startups in a few areas and um, as a, you know, innovation lead uh, in a legal tech company just saw the real potential for this, you know, and especially in a realm like legal where, you know, the data is very structured and there's just, you know, real potential to, um, you know, and a lot of time spent on small early details. I was a lawyer, you know, prior to I began my career as a lawyer. So kind of understand that there's a lot of little details in there, which um, if you can, you know, free up the human mind from doing much of that and focus on more of the strategy and the higher level, more creative um, capacities or, or, you know, things that clients need or, or companies need. I think that's where it gets really exciting. It's just being able to, you know, you know, bring the most of our capacity at work and, and these, you know, um, you know, smarter machines are going to help us do that. Yeah. I mean, if we get philosophical to a certain degree, I think one of the things that might be causing anxiety for some though, is maybe the prospect of automation and yes, tasks will be easier. Humans will be able to focus on other things, but there's also the prospect of say retraining people. You know, what's your perspective on what AI is going to be doing with regards to changes to the workforce in the coming years? Sure. Yeah. No, I think, I think it will change the workforce. Um, but you know, across the board, there's a need for, um, you know, 
people to help with, with machines, whether it's, you know, training the machines, there's, um, you know, some jobs which don't require a ton of training or education, um, which is simply, you know, working with machines to look at the data and understand, you know, help them, you know, process and, and, uh, make sense of, of what's going in. You need a lot of, you know, human oversight on that, but, you know, more, more of the, um, you know, say higher skilled jobs as well. Um, you know, you could even look at, um, you know, say a job like, uh, you know, school bus driver, if you have AI, you know, driving your buses around and, and, and you know, before too long, we've got autonomous driving vehicles, you're still going to need someone to look after the children. So maybe that role turns into a bit more of an educational role, spending that time, you know, on the bus and, and looking out for pe- people's well-being as opposed to, you know, the, the kind of, you know, pure focus on driving. So throughout the, um, you know, kind of value chain, supply chain, there's going to be really interesting new you know, opportunities for people to to work with technology. It's not simply going to, you know, put put a, a large number of people out of work. Like for example, you might have you, know, you can envision when computers came in and and um, uh, you know spreadsheets came about. There were a lot of bookkeepers that were working hard and considering, oh, are these you know going to r- remove the job of bookkeeping. And yet today, there's many many bookkeepers and. Mm-hmm. What that does is it enables um, companies to be more uh, efficient in the work they're doing and be, you know, have better outcomes, basically, because they can uh, then process the data much, much faster, um, not having to have you know, human beings uh, do all the, the calculations as, as you know, bookkeepers had to do in the you know, 80s, call it. Um, and the result is, is much better. And meanwhile, you've still got this you know, robust workforce just doing better things. Well, excellent. Steve, if somebody wants to find out more information about AINBC, uh, what's the best thing for them to do? Um, yeah, so check out our website. It's AINBC.ai. Um, we're on social media in a variety of different places. And uh, yeah, we've got our launch event coming up um, on Tuesday, as you mentioned too. So um, you know, it's a great opportunity. You'll see more and more coming f- uh, from us in the news, et cetera. And um, yeah, just stay tuned. Excellent. Steve, thanks for joining us on the show. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's great. That's Steve Lowry, Executive Director of AINBC. And stay with us. Stress and wellness coach Nicole Porter, she joins us next because, of course, October marks the beginning of Healthy Workplace Month. So I think we can all relate to this uh, stress in the workplace. And I think one question that we might want to do is how can we address this on maybe a broad level? October is, in fact, Healthy Workplace Month. And joining us today is Nicole Porter. She is a stress and wellness coach at Nicole Porter Wellness. And Nicole, I want to thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. So just in your experience, I mean, how are the average Canadian workers at when it comes to managing stress in the workplace? You know, I think we would probably all like to think that we know what to do um, and that we're doing our best to manage it. But one of the things that I often deal with in my business is teaching people what stress really is. So... Yes, stress is, you know, trying to get the kids to go to bed or struggling to find work-life balance or trying to manage your finances. But what people don't necessarily understand is that stress can also be put on the body through things like dehydration, poor diet, um, too much screen time, which is definitely something most of us are guilty of, multitasking, even negative mindset. So there are lots of things that we definitely could be doing better. So not just the mental, but the physical that we need to take into consideration. 
consideration. Absolutely. I was listening to, I had a friend, he sent me a link to a podcast uh, a couple months ago and it was talking about like sleep and how imperative it is towards uh, just being healthy throughout the next day. And the thing that frightened me most though is the effects of having your smartphone late at night, staring at that while you're in bed. It, it scared me off doing that. I've been pretty good the last few months, but tell me a little bit about me, the screen time issue that you brought up just a second ago. Yeah. So in my programs, I get everyone to do a challenge every week. And one of the challenges is has to do with sleep and screen time because the two are very connected or can be very connected. So I try to get people to shut down their screen about an hour before they go to bed. And honestly, it's one of those things where people notice can notice a difference right away, almost the next day, because the screens stimulate our nervous system the wrong part of our nervous system. So if you want to have a good night's sleep, you need to activate a certain part of your nervous system and deactivate the other part. But screens, in fact, are actually doing what we don't want to do. Um, So it, it can activate the nervous system. That can impact our hormones. And then that can inevitably end up in a poor night's sleep. And then people wake up with fatigue and then they have coffee with sugar. And then the whole sort of pattern starts with not really fueling our bodies the way that we need to fuel them. What happens when we get to the workplace and, you know, a job like mine? Reporter. I'm on my computer all day. I'm either reading news stories or writing news stories. I kind of have that uh, screen addiction to a certain degree. What could I do to maybe mitigate some of that uh, dependency that I have on my screen while I'm here at work? So one thing that I definitely recommend to people is to at least have just maximum one screen at a time. Because we can be guilty for having, you know, your laptop or your iPad or your desktop there with your phone beside you. So even just doing, um, working with one screen at a time can can alleviate a little bit of stress on the system. Um, and then trying as best as you can to take little breaks throughout the day or even that hour or even 30 minutes shut down before bed. It does honestly feel like a little mini vacation, as sad as that sounds. Um, sometimes we we just need to take that break where we can get it. So maybe it's maybe it's a five minute break every hour, um, or it's definitely keeping the screen off the table at lunch or at your meals, um, and certainly a few minutes, at least maybe thirty minutes before bed. I, I think the uh, the mental stuff that you were bringing up, the, the stresses there, something we can all relate to. But you're bringing up the, the physical stuff too, which I, I find very interesting. And I'm wondering, like, it's tough to always have that perfectly balanced diet when you're at work, but what are some easy things that we can think of to help mitigate our stresses when it comes to just our our daily routines, I suppose? Mm -hmm. So one of the, one of the things that I, the first thing that I try to get people to do is hydrate more. And you may not include that in your diet or count that as nutrition, but I count that as nutrition. So definitely people need to be drinking more water because there is a correlation between dehydration and fatigue. And a lot of people, probably the top three reasons people come to see me, um, one of them is fatigue. And so people need to be more hydrated for sure. But you know, tying into that, when people get that sort of three o'clock craving or they feel like their energy is slumping, the, most people will reach for something sweet or something caffeinated. And I try to encourage people, as as boring as it might sound in the moment, to have another cup of water or two because that can actually um, hydrate your body, which is related to fatigue um, and and just help you get over sugar cravings as well. Like we inevitably crash after we consume this stuff, right? 
You do. Um, I mean, there's so many layers to it because if if people are so wrapped up in diet and counting calories, and I find that a lot of people will, you know, they think they're eating a healthy breakfast. Oftentimes they're eating on the go, which is not good either. Um, And then and then lunch. So often I hear, "What what did you have for lunch? Chicken or or a salad with protein." right? That's kind of a standard answer. But oftentimes people aren't getting enough food to fuel their body. So people are are counting calories or counting fat or counting protein when they really need to be listening to their bodies and using that those signals as a guide for what they need to eat in the moment. And so when people get that craving or that energy slump at three in the afternoon, it's not necessarily because of something that happened, you know, between one and 3 p.m. It could be because you didn't have a good breakfast. It could be because you didn't have a good night's sleep even three nights before. So it's all very holistic and 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 correlated it, for it's sure. It's really that butterfly effect, right? Um, absolutely. Okay. So okay. So we're talking a lot of internal things, and, and wondering how much is it kind of a uh, uh, coworker to coworker thing that uh, we can help each other out with? Maybe stresses in the workplace too. So one thing that I encourage people to do is to do a meal share at the office. Um, So, you know, you can sit down and pick recipes and just make sure that they're, you know, healthy recipes. And when I say healthy, I mean with real food. I don't mean that it's got X number of calories or X number of fat or protein. I mean that it's made with real food and real ingredients. And do do an office, like a a meal share in the office. It could be between two people. It could be between four. and kind of holding each other accountable as well. What does it mean if uh, you are able to get out of the office for a little bit, get for going on a walk or something like that? I'm just wondering about the physical activity aspect too. Yeah, you're reading my mind because that was the next thing <laughs> I wanted to say. Um, so another thing with exercise is that people don't think that those 20 minute or even a 10 minute walk around the block counts, but it does. It does count towards moving your body. It improves your immune system. It helps move toxins through your body. It can, it can help manage blood glucose. Um, you know, stress can, uh, diabetes is related to high blood glucose. Um, and so is stress. And so getting out and moving. So when you're going to take that five minute break away from your screen, then you can get up and do a little walk around the office as well. And no. obviously getting outside for some fresh air is is an amazing thing as well. Well, I was just going to say, I just noticed over this past weekend, it seemed as if it is officially fall now. Like the the, uh, the leaves are all like orange, but I was also noticing it's like crisp outside. It's it like, is. it's kind of a nice time to go outside. It is. It's beautiful. And it happens to be sunny at this moment. Yeah. So um, yeah, I would definitely get people to get outside and, and, and just not, don't write off. Like so often I'll ask people, what did you do for exercise? And they'll say, oh, I only went for a walk and they don't count it. Mm. And so when people don't count it, there's a mind game there, right? Because when they don't count it, they think that they didn't do a good job. And that means they may go home at the end of the day and go, oh, I'm a failure or I didn't get my workout in. So I'm just going to maybe not sabotage, but I'm not going to treat my body the best way that I should. So they may eat too much. They might be on their screens too much. They might have too much wine, whatever it is, when really they should have given themselves a pat on the back for at least getting in a 30-minute walk. So it's like they're they're kind of throwing away the entire day just because of one – you know, perception of something they did. 
totally. It's it's very much an all or nothing mindset and and it plays a huge, huge role, especially in the coaching element of what I do. So maybe as we wrap up here, I think this is something that everyone can relate to, but finding that work-life balance. And is it kind of an obvious you know, measures that we could be taking to maybe, I don't know, uh, cut ourselves off from email uh, from workplace after a certain time of day? Or, or what do you often find works for people if they need to find that balance? Um, I, I think that every, everyone's different yeah. because um, everyone's different, but everyone's the same. And so the people who have, you know, maybe there's some people who are struggling with fatigue or with food sensitivities or digestive problems or something, a hormonal imbalance. So those people I might approach a little bit differently, but in general, I think it's, it, it, if I had to narrow it down to one thing, it would probably be about that mindset piece is just mm. not beating yourself up for being a little bit better every single day. And you know what? I'm also about realism too. So if you have a glass of wine or you have a piece of chocolate or you whatever it might be, then just don't beat yourself up for it and feel like you're a failure and just pick up the next day, try to get a good night's sleep, hydrate yourself, and then pick up the next day with some better habits. Well, excellent. Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That is Nicole Porter. She is a stress and wellness coach at Nicole Porter Wellness. And that's it for our show today. You can find our archives on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. So please go ahead and tell a friend. It's going to help us find even more listeners. For now, I'm Tyler Orton, and we'll be back on Tuesday. <laughs>